Well, this morning we are embarking on something a little different. We are embarking on an introduction, really, to the book of 1 Samuel. As a church, we typically preach through different books of the Bible, and it's been a little while since we've preached through an Old Testament book, but now we're going to be beginning preaching through the book of 1 Samuel, and today is really just going to be an overview of the book of 1 Samuel, an introduction to the, the book of 1 Samuel, kind of want to explain why we're getting into it, and then kind of whet your appetite for it. We got to go away last February and enjoy a class in 1 Samuel from a guy named David Helm and Mike Bullmore, and it was a wonderful time where our vision our sight of Jesus was exalted. I I love that that was actually the the words that God impressed on people this morning because that's really what 1 Samuel is about. It's it's about looking for the king. 1 Samuel is about looking for the king. And, And although in that day they didn't realize what king they were looking for, they had a hope that was not realized. And they were looking for a faithful king, an ideal king. They were looking for a king who would not be like an earthly king. And so we're excited to be able to dive into the the book of 1 Samuel because I believe it's going to help us see who Jesus is even better. And you might think it's a little crazy, right? But all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And so um, our view of Jesus is going to be deepened as we explore the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, though, it's, it's not a, a story that's a standalone. It's a story that's in a context. The, the Bible is an account of God's work on earth. It's an account of God's created order, that God created all things, and he created man to live in his image. And then we see that man rebelled against God, and then we see God's redemptive plan all throughout history being played out. And, and if you want to open up to your table of contents in your Bible, if you're not familiar with where Samuel is, go ahead and do that, please. Open up the book of 1 Samuel or open up to your table of contents. Samuel is the ninth book in the Bible. There are eight books that come before it, and it's important to have some kind of understanding of the background because if you've ever read a story, it's important to know the setting of the story. If you've ever read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, it's important to know the setting and the time that that takes place. Maybe uh, if you read a, a book like The Hunger Games, it's important to know where and, and when this story takes place. If you are reading maybe a great book like The Tale of Two Cities, it's important to know the setting to be able to understand the story. It's no different with a biblical story in 1 Samuel. It's important to know the setting of 1 Samuel if we're really to understand what 1 Samuel is all about and what it looks forward to and why it's there. So Samuel's the ninth book, the very first book of the Bible we went through a few years ago. It's Genesis. Genesis is all about how God had created man to to be in his image, to reflect him. He actually was a delegate of God. In a sense, God created man to be a little king like him, to subdue and have dominion over all the earth. And yet, we all know the story, if you've read Genesis, that Man rebelled against God, wanted to usurp God's kingship and authority. And so God had to curse man and and it separated man. Sin, rebellion against God, this wanting to be king instead of God, separated man from God. And yet we see at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see that, that God in the curse on the serpent, God promises a seed that will one day crush 
the head of the serpent. And then we see throughout the book of Genesis, um, we, we see God's promises continue to develop. In the first few chapters of Genesis, things are pretty bleak. Mankind descends increasingly into more and more sin. Then God has to wipe all of mankind out. He brings Noah to kind of be the head, the new head, and yet Noah, he fails too. And so God continues to work, and, and God is not giving up on mankind. He continues to be faithful and merciful and forgiving time after time as people rebel, and God forgives and relents in his anger. And we see that God brings out this guy named Abram from Ur of Chaldees, this unknown man who wasn't seeking God. God sought him out, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And in essence, in those days, he made Abraham a king of sorts. But he wasn't really a king. There wasn't really a kingdom. And yet he made these grand promises to Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations, that, that he would bless all the nations through him. And then we see the rest of the book of Genesis really is an account of the, the four generations of Abraham. And then there's something very strange at the, at the end of the book of Genesis. There's this strange prophetic word. And it's that it's that the word that's given on Israel's deathbed, and, and he's prophesying over his sons, and, and he prophesies to his son Judah, and he says that from him will come a leader and a scepter, will not leave him, and he will rule and reign forever. And that's the last chapter of Genesis. Then we see in Exodus how God is rescuing his people. 400 years later, his people are still not in the promised land. They've still not received the promises. And so 400 years later, they're in captivity. They don't yet have that leader that was promised. And yet God raises up Moses and he leads them out. And, and you're wondering, will Moses be this deliverer? Will he be the great leader who will lead them forever, whose scepter will never depart? And yet we see that Moses himself failed and was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And then, so he appoints Joshua Joshua takes over from Moses. And you think, Joshua is going to be a conqueror. Maybe he's the leader. And so it's looking forward for this. Maybe he's the conqueror, the ruler. And yet Joshua is not the one. Joshua leads the people, but yet they're not really a nation quite yet. And then we see through the other, the other books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God's people being established we see the book of Joshua. He's encouraging the people to follow after God, to be faithful, to be faithful to God's covenant promises. And if you are faithful to God, he will bless you. But if not, he will bring curses. And yet the people continuously fail in the book of Judges. We have about an 800-year span where judge after judge is raised up. God's merciful. And he brings judges to God's people. And yet none of them are faithful. None of them are the one that's anticipated. All of them fail. None of them crush the head of the serpent. None of them carry the scepter and lead forever. None of them are established. All of them fail. And there's a problem at the end of Judges. Go ahead and flip in your Bibles to the last chapter of Judges. I'll wait for you to get there. I'll get there at the same time, actually. Judges. 
The very last line in Judges 21, in, in, in verse 25, is an indictment. Judge after judge had been raised up. Judge after judge had failed. By this time, actually right before this, before I read that verse, right before then, Israel was in, in, embroiled really in a civil war. You see, there was this man from Ephraim, in the hill country of Ephraim, a Levite. He had taken his concubine and he'd gone through the land of Benjamin. And remember that, Benjamin, an Ephraimite. Well, it'll become relevant later in 1 Samuel. He had, he had gone through the land of Benjamin. He stopped there. And the wickedness in the land was so great that the men wanted to lie with him in a, in, in a homosexual way. And so the, the man who was sheltering him protected him. But yet they sent out their concubine. And the men in the city in, in Benjamin, and they, they raped the concubine and killed her. And so the whole nation of Israel goes out to war against Benjamin. Benjamin takes some casualties and yet Benjamin is then slaughtered and all the tribes of Israel promise that Benjamin will not marry any of their daughters and then yet they kind of renege on their own promise for righteous justice and they make a deal with Benjamin and towards the end of Judges, the last chapter there, they make a deal and they say, you know, we'll have to keep our oath to God, but we're, what we're going to do is we're going to pretend we're keeping our oath. And yet every time when we go out to celebrate the Lord at Shiloh, we're going to send our daughters out in the field to dance. And we, you can kidnap them. And we'll be innocent that way of our oath. And, and so we see this, this picture of just debauchery and everyone is living for themselves. There's no justice. There's no ruler and then in the end of Judges, in Judges 21, 25, it's an indictment, really an epitaph on the people of Israel. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right, not according to God, but in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you're following through in the English Bible, right after Judges comes Ruth and then 1 Samuel. In the Jewish Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, um, Samuel came immediately after Judges. Ruth was recorded as part of the writings and it was separate. And so the Hebrew reader would have read Judges, that last line, and then immediately gone right into 1 Samuel. And, and that's really the context, the setting, is that there is a big problem in the land of Israel. And it's really a problem that we can relate to today, can't we? There's a problem of lawlessness. There's a problem of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone wants to be king. Look around the world today. What objective standard of truth does everyone live by? I'd say, I'd say there's no common, no shared objective truth for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And for those who do know Jesus Christ, if you try to share objective truth, people act as their own king and do what's right in their own eyes. What's good for you is good for you, but what's good for me is what's good for me. I don't want to hear you telling me what to do. I don't want to hear you telling me that I could be wrong. Don't impose your morals on me. Have you ever heard those things? Boy, I think that the book of Samuel not only is relatable 
because we can understand the, the human condition that it explains, but I think the context that the book of 1 Samuel is set in is a context that we are familiar with as well. There is lawlessness. Our, our society, our culture is, is really spiraled into downward into sin, and so who will be our judge? Who will be our king? Who will we live for? Will we choose to live as if we're our own kings? Will we do whatever's right in our own eyes? Samuel begins with this individual freedom reigning as, as God and the people worshiping the cult of self. That is a common problem for us today as well. It begins with a big problem and rampant sin of all kinds. Sins that you could not have imagined. And that's actually how it describes the very end of Judges. Sins like no one had ever seen in Israel before. And, and really, in the last few weeks, we've seen different types of sin that we might not have imagined 10, 20 years ago. And so the question is, who will we live for? We live as if we're the king. And then the other question it brings up is, is God really in control? Is God really there? And 1 Samuel is helpful for us to see that God's not left the scene. God's still in control. God's still raising up his king. And we see in Samuel that there was a need for a king. There's a desperate need for a king. The second thing we see in Samuel is that we should be looking for the king. Samuel, it's the unfolding of, of a story of a people needing and wanting a king to rule them, to lead them, to fight their battles, to bring them peace. They, at the end of Judges, after 800 years, they still were tormented by the Philistines. The Philistines had come along about 200 years prior to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is probably written somewhere between 1070 and 950 BC. And the Philistines had come in about 200 years prior and they had brought this modern technology in the Iron Age, something the Israelites did not yet have. And they were dominating militarily and they were dominating politically and they were dominating financially. And they were a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And that's the setting of the book of 1 Samuel. And so it's a setting where the people should be looking for a king. They need a rescuer. They need that, that king that was promised of old. Actually, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, Hannah, who's the main character at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, she is praising God. And in her, her prayer of praise to God, at the end of it, she mentions that, that God is the one who will raise up a righteous king. Because she too was, was looking for a king. She was, and we should be looking for a king. And Samuel, it's that story of looking for the king. It's the title of the whole series. And, and really, this is what frames the whole book is this longing for, this anticipation of, this looking for the king that is promised, the promised anointed one, the one who, whose scepter will never depart, the one who will also be a priest and king and prophet. Samuel really establishes those things and reveals that we need a, we, we need a king who will be faithful to God and a king who will obey God, who will lead into righteousness and be exalted by God. For Samuel, it 
the very first chapter, it, it begins with a destitute, barren woman. She's lowly. Her name is Hannah. She's the, the wife of Elkanah along with another woman named Penina. Penina has lots of children. Elkanah has chosen Hannah as his favorite and yet she's hated by Penina because of that. And she's barren, she's, she's lowly, she's destitute, and, and she's looking herself for a king. She's crying out to God, and she's having hope and faith in God, but really she's one of the only ones who's having faith in God in that moment. The situation is desperate. She, she comes in, in a time when Israel is being ruled by Eli, the high priest, and his, his sons... They're evil and worthless men. They're evil and worthless men. Look in, in 1 Samuel 2.12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That should have made the people of Israel be looking for a better leader. Eli, at best, was complacent and ignored what his sons were doing. He, he kind of slaps them on the wrist, but doesn't actually correct them. And then a man of God comes in 1 Samuel 2, 35, and, and he prophesies to Eli because Eli has been an unfaithful judge. Eli is the next to last judge, and Samuel will be the next judge, the final judge. And, and he prophesies to Eli, who is both a judge and high priest, both of whom should be leaders. And yet neither the judge nor the high priest, Eli, in either of those roles is he, is he being faithful and and so God comes to him and in 1 Samuel 2.35, he says, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And the implication there is Eli and his sons are not doing what is in God's heart or in his mind. He says, I will build him a sure house. And that speaks of something different. And the Israelites should be looking for a different office. He says, I'll build him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who's left in your house. Now think about that. Whose house is Eli a part of? He's a part of the house of the Levites, of Aaron. And so God here is saying that everyone who is left in your house, in the house of Levi, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. It's, it's really God prophesying about another leader who will not come from the house of Levi. It's foreshadowing, divine foreshadowing, and now we're in, we can see clearly on this side of redemptive history. There was a need for a king. We should be looking for a king to lead us. They were looking for a king who would lead them righteously, who would lead them rightly towards the end of Samuel's life. He appoints his, his boys. He's had a, you think, maybe, maybe Samuel will be this righteous leader. Samuel was appointed. Samuel was appointed as a judge. And, and for a few chapters in the book of Samuel, it seems like things are going to go well. He, God brings victory because Samuel is trusting in God. God actually brings low the high priest Eli and he raises up the lowly Samuel. That was something that Hannah in her song sung about. She says, God, you're the one who raises up the lowly and brings down the exalted. And we saw that happen with Eli. She, he, he brought down the exalted Eli and raised up the lowly little boy, Samuel. 
And, and you think that maybe Samuel will be this one. Maybe Samuel will be the rescuer. And yet at the end of Samuel's life, he, he promotes his boys. And his boys end up taking bribes and being just as worthless and terrible as the sons of Eli were. And so what was the response of the people? The people came and they said, we're looking for a king. We want a king. Now the problem is, is not that they were looking for a king because God had made a provision for that back in Exodus. But they were looking for the wrong kind of king. There's a need for the king, but they were looking for the, really the wrong kind of king. They were looking for an earthly king. And I think I have the third point up there for you. I'm not sure, but I, I think that the next point, I believe, is, is the need for a king. And that's really what comes up when the people come at the end of Samuel's life and they say, your sons are not doing what's right. We need a king. Samuel's offended. Part of that offense is okay because they're looking for a king from like the nations. They're looking for a king of the earth. The other part of it probably was not okay that Samuel was offended It was okay that they were looking for a king because God actually allows them a king. It's it's not a condemnation necessarily, but God, the the second half, the type of king they're looking for is not a good king. And so so God promises he'll give them a king who will use them and abuse them and and tax them. And and they'll, they'll regret the kind of king they're looking for, even though there is a desperate need for a king among God's people. Looking back in redemptive history, there is a need for one who will be faithful, who will not fail. There's a need for one who won't do what's wrong. There's a need for one who will care more about the people and what's best for them than he will care about self-seeking. There's a need for a king who would be humble. There was a need for a king who would be righteous and rule and reign. All of the previous leaders in the book of Samuel and Judges and in all of Israel's past, all of them at one time failed. And there's a need for a faithful king among God's people. A king who would rule and reign. You see, God promised, he promised to bless the people if they would keep his covenants. And yet, the people never had a leader who would lead in that faithfully, fully. Many a leader, they thought, oh, maybe, maybe, and then no. And maybe this is the one, no. Even Samuel, maybe he's the one. And then he fails and he appoints his sons. We need a king. The people of Israel needed a king to lead them, to act like God's own king and do what was right, but yet, really, they weren't looking for that kind of king. I'll skip ahead uh, in the slides to First Samuel eight seven. God answers the people's request for a king, and He tells Samuel, "Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you." Samuel's a little miffed that they want a replacement. They want a king like the nations, 
Again, the request wasn't bad that they wanted a king, but it was, it was bad that they wanted a king like the nations. They wanted somebody who looked impressive, who was going to fight for them, win their military victories. They wanted somebody who was strong and noble. They wanted somebody like all the nations around them who would, who would gather the people together for war and who would be strong and mighty on their own. And God says, go ahead, give them what they want. And yet we know that in looking for the king, they were looking for the wrong kind of king. And it talks about that as, as Samuel, he, you think maybe this is the right kind of king that's coming up. Maybe the right kind of king is coming up in, in this man called Saul. And so the next few chapters, we see that Saul is kind of divinely brought before Samuel, and there's this weird thing that's mentioned often with Saul. It's mentioned that Saul's handsome. He's really good looking. He's really handsome. You're like, what's that all about? Well, Saul was being evaluated like the world evaluates, based on looks, based on impressions. Saul was being evaluated on how he came across, and Saul was this big dude. He was really handsome. It actually says he was more handsome than any man in Israel at the time. I mean, if you get the drift, he was really good looking, apparently. And um, not only that, it says that Saul stood a whole head and a half taller than, than anybody else. He was good looking. He was impressive. He was a stud. But, but he wasn't really the kind of person that they should have been looking for. I think that's my actual notes now I have them so um, I can figure out where I'm at <laughs> give me a moment it's the first time I've actually left my notes at home but I think God's being gracious to us anyway right so but just for your sake I'll go back to make sure I actually follow some notes here excellent we look back in chapter 2 in Hannah's song, there was this, this foreshadowing of the king in, in Samuel 2.10. He says, the Lord, she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here's how he'll judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And so Samuel shows us that we should be looking for the king. We don't just need a king, we should be looking for the king as well. And that's the fourth point this morning. We should be looking for the king. Samuel, it's the unfolding of a story of the people needing and wanting a king to rule them, to lead them, to fight those battles. What was wrong was that they rejected God as their king. In, in 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 9, God tells Samuel, go ahead and do what the people want, but he tells them what's wrong. He says in 1 Samuel 8, 7 and 9, he says, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And he goes on to explain this earthly king. And he puts Saul in place. And you think... Maybe Saul's going to be this good guy because in, in Samuel 11, Saul brings deliverance through God's enabling power. God brings deliverance through Saul. And then in chapter 13 of Samuel, he brings deliverance 
through Saul's hands again. But then in chapter 13, we see that Saul does something really dumb. He fears the people instead of fearing God. Samuel had told him to go and wait and to sacrifice to God, and, and yet Saul is more interested in expediency and in what the people think that he is in pleasing God. Does that sound familiar for any political leaders today? He was more interested in appearances. He was more interested in using religion to get what he wanted. You know, that's a throwback to earlier in the book of Samuel where they, they kind of, the people of Israel try to use the Ark of the Covenant like a talisman. And they say, well, bring the Ark. They didn't even inquire of God. Is this what you have for us? Bring the Ark. And then when they go and they bring the Ark, they lose the Ark. Samuel gets it back. But we see really the same sin being repeated in Saul, their leader. He, he, he wants to sacrifice really to appease the people. So he can, you know what, I haven't gotten God's blessing. I've got to get his blessing, then I can go and... But he was really using the sacrifice like a talisman, using God to get what he wanted. And the question for all of us is really, will we seek to do that? What kind of king do we look to? What kind of king do we hope in? Do we seek to use God to get our own purposes well, he, he uses the sacrifice to serve himself, but he, Samuel comes and confronts him. And Saul says, you know, I had to force myself. Really, you know, you hadn't come along, Samuel. It's your fault. And I forced myself to go ahead and sacrifice. It was, I, I did. I forced myself because, you know, I, I needed God's favor. So Samuel tells him in, in, in 1 Samuel 13, 13, he says, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You see what kind of king they should have been looking for. It was a king who would keep the commands of the Lord. Because then it would be a forever kingdom. Samuel continues, he says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. This earthly kingdom, this, this, this kingdoms after the order of man will not continue. He says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was unfaithful and unrighteous. He disobeyed God, and so he's removed as their king, even though it took a while for Saul to go away. And you're wondering, Samuel tells him that he's, he's being removed as king, and yet we have Saul hanging on really through the rest of the book of Samuel. He anoints David as king, and yet David is not yet become king in actuality. It reveals what we need a king who will be faithful to God, to obey God and lead in righteousness and be exalted by God question I think for each and every person is will we look for a king to lead us or will we act like our own king and do what's right in our own eyes if Saul's not the kind of king we need if the earthly impressive kings are not what we need if we need a king who's faithful who is that king what kind of king are we looking for Samuel helps us answer that question in in the book of Samuel it really tells us what kind of king we should look for and it's framed within this larger story of God as the exalted king over all. He's the one who reigns and he rules. He's the one who brings low. He's the one who exalts. In Hannah's song, she sang of this in 1 Samuel 2, 6. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. You see, it's, it's, we need a king of God's making. 
We need a humble king. We need a king that God exalts. We need a king that God raises up. In verse 8 she says, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are the earth of the Lord's and on them he has set the world. What is that showing us? He is the king. It says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. It's not by trusting in our own strength that we prevail, that man prevails. In verse 10 it says, the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against him he'll thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Interesting that Hannah prophetically is saying that. And exalt the power of his anointed. God is the one who's the ultimate king and judge. And his, his people need a king that he gives strength to. His people need a king that's been raised up from the, po- the, the poor. He's, he needs a king from amongst the lowly and humble. That's what kind of king is needed. A king that lowly yet exalted. A king is humble and yet his name is lifted up. That's the kind of king Samuel makes us anticipate and long for and look for. That's the kind of king his people should be looking for. God's the one who raises up. He's the one who appoints and also removes earthly kings. And it was clear in Saul that God's people didn't need and shouldn't look for a king like the nations. And we can learn from that too. You know, what, where do we look for deliverance? Do we look to political systems? Do we look to the kingdoms of this earth for deliverance? That's not the kind of king we need. We don't need a political party to rescue. We don't need capitalism. We don't need democracy to rescue us. We don't even need the American form of government to rescue us. We need a king to lead us in righteousness and goodness. We need a king who will be faithful forever. We need a king who's God's anointed. So where are we looking for our leadership? Where are we looking for hope That's the kind of questions that Samuel really confronts us with. Are are we acting like our own little kings and doing what's right in our own eyes? Or are we looking for earthly kings to get us what we need and want? You know, our hope is not in this life, and Samuel teaches that. Our hope is not in earthly kings. Our hope is in the one anointed king that God will raise up. And Samuel teaches us, though, to look for, and all throughout the Old Testament, from Samuel onwards, there's this looking for who will be this anointed king. Saul, he was a Benjamite from the tribe of Ephraim. Remember back in Judges? And he says, you know, I'm I'm, I'm lowly. I'm from this little tribe. Well, he wasn't lying. He was from this little tribe. This tribe had almost been wiped out. Yet God raised him up, and yet when when Saul exalted himself above God, God demoted him and removed him. And so God called and anoints this, this little man, this little shepherd, this person who seemed small in people's eyes. He, he calls this young boy named David. And in contrast with Saul, in complete contrast, God raises up this young little boy, basically, this young man, his brothers are all out to battle, and yet David is, is not really mature enough, probably old enough to be out to battle. He's home with the sheep. 
He's a shepherd, and yet he's coming just to bring provisions. And God, God uses this encounter as David is bringing provisions, and, and he sees this man assaulting God as the great king over all. And David comes to defense and says that he trusts in the Lord, the one who is exalted over all. And so he sees this nine and a half foot tall man, Goliath, who is great and exalted. And David, he, it's this comical picture. He, he tries to put on the sword and the armor of Saul. He can't do it. He's like, I don't even know how to use this stuff. And so he sets it aside and he goes out and he gets a stone. And yet he trusts in God. He looks to Yahweh the king. And this exalted one who is hurling offenses against God's people is brought low by the one that God raises up. David doesn't trust in his own might or in his sword, but he trusts in God. And then the whole nation adores David and praises him. And you think, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the anointed one. And then in Samuel, you see that David is a man after God's own heart. He's a conqueror par excellence, greater than his predecessors. (coughs) And he uses the small, the weak David, the obscure, and he raises him up to be this champion. And I love how this commentator, Dale Davis, he puts it when he said, he says, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, like the beginning of the book of Samuel, Hannah is without strength. She is it's a feeling of hopelessness, without resources, without hope, he says, without human gimmicks. Then God loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven to raise up. That's the kind of king that we need, a king who's humble and trusts in God. And it seems like in the, in the book of Samuel that maybe David is this king. In fact, when he has a chance to do what's wrong and to execute the Lord's anointed one, he withholds and he is just and he is loyal and he is good and he's faithful. On two separate occasions, God kind of puts this test before David and, and he gets ready to go and, and kill Saul, but he doesn't. He says, I can't touch God's anointed one. I'm, I'm not going to raise myself up. I'm not going to put myself in God's place. God, I'm going to trust in God to do what he's called me to do. And there's this contrast in the rest of the book of Samuel between Saul and David. David really never gets to be king. Saul pursues David everywhere. And then he flees with the help of Saul's son, Jonathan. And David hides out. He goes into the wilderness. And kind of like Christ, he goes off into the wilderness for a period. David has a, at least twice spares Saul's life. He Saul's the kind of king, though, who pursues his own goals and he chases after David and he, he ends up, as he's doing that, as he's pursuing David, the Philistines come in and he's on the verge of losing his kingdom and the nation is again threatened. And in Saul, he's relying on his own strength. 
God won't answer him because he's, he's, he's forsaken God and so God is silent. Samuel's gotten, Saul, I mean, sorry, Saul has gotten more evil and selfish towards the end of 1 Samuel so God won't talk to him. He, he can't hear and so he takes matters into his own hands instead of saying, I know that David was anointed. I'm going to trust in God's anointed one. Saul is a picture of a man who doesn't trust in God's anointed one and yet trusts in himself. And so he turns to, to foolish and evil ways and he goes to this witch in Endor. And the witch prophesies, really brings up this, this ghost, this, this vision of Samuel and who tells him that he and his sons will die. And then Samuel 31, it ends with Saul's son Jonathan being killed and then Saul at the end of his life, the one who trusted in his sword, he dies by his own sword. He commits suicide. His death is symbolic. The Philistines don't remove him. David doesn't remove him. Saul removed himself through his own faithlessness and disobedience. And he confirms it through his suicide. David, he refused to use Saul's sword against Goliath and he relied on God's simple provision. And then Saul, who relied on his sword, dies by this sword. You know, it, it makes this question, what are we relying on? Whose strength are we trusting in? Saul's not the kind of king we're looking for, is he? We don't really want an earthly king like the other nations. Our hope is not really in this world or what government we can have. And then, because First and Second Samuel really were not First and Second Samuel originally, I'm going to share a little bit of the background for Second Samuel. We're not going to preach all through Second Samuel in the series. We're just going to do First Samuel for now. Maybe later we'll take a break, come back to it in a while. But um, when Samuel was originally written, it was written by as one volume. But because it was too big for a scroll, it was unwieldy. The scribes split it into two scrolls. It was really simple. It was just um, expediency. One scroll, they couldn't take care of it. It was too long. You couldn't unroll it and put it back together easily. You couldn't find your place. And so they split it into two scrolls. And then eventually in the English Bible, they made it into two books for us today. But it was really written as one cohesive account in 1 Samuel, it ends with this longing for a king who'll be faithful to God. That's how it ends. It ends on a really brutal, sad note. David has prophesied to be the king, and yet he is not yet actually ruling and reigning. In 2 Samuel, we see that God establishes David, and David puts down all of his enemies decisively. And David seems to be the king that everyone wants and needs. After all, he loves God. He's a man after God's own heart. And for the first time, David brings peace to the nation of Israel in, in over 800 years. There's peace and safety on all sides. God is with his people and with his anointed. And then God actually expands his promises in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, he says, God says to David, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What kind of king is being spoken of here? 
He says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And then everything looks great towards the end of 2 Samuel. Surely David's the kind of king we should look for, right? But then we have this really awful, sad scene in 2 Samuel, David, the righteous ruler and deliverer, is supposed to be going out to war, and yet he stays back and is lazy and self-seeking when the time when kings go out to war. He sees Bathsheba, he lusts, and he takes another man's wife. And then he tries to cover it up by murdering her husband. And then after he's confronted the, the difference between him and Saul, he, repent, he repents and things seem to get better, but you're, you're wondering, this really can't be the faithful and righteous king, can it? Towards the end of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 22, David recovers, he praises God for exalting him, and he, he, he gives the same theme. Remember the, the song that Hannah sang at the beginning of 1 Samuel? Well, we have kind of a bookend at the end of 2 Samuel with David having a song or a poem, and he says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the Lord who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me. You hear that taking low, bringing low, and exalt, exalting up language? You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. For this I'll praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. But the question is still lingering. Is this really the anointed ruler? The last chapter of 2 Samuel, it ends just as abysmally as 1 Samuel. David takes his census. It doesn't seem very bad, but what does David do in the end? He's relying on his own strength. He's counting the strength of his people. He's trusting in his own nation and his own abilities. And so God sends a plague and 70,000 people are wiped out. And so David, he repents and he responds, but it leaves the reader at the end of the, the book of Samuel looking for another king. Asking, will God send a righteous king? Will God have a king who follows after his own heart, who is just and faithful, who brings peace forever? Ultimately, Samuel shows us that we need a king who would humble himself and yet be exalted. We need a king who will take the place of the people instead of using the people We need a king who's not self-serving but sacrifices himself for the good of his people. We need a king who was and is always faithful to God's promises. We need a king who won't die to represent us because every human fails. We need an eternal king who can bring us eternal peace and forgiveness and justice and mercy. Ultimately, Samuel helps us see Jesus more clearly helps us look to the once and forever king. The king who is and has been appointed and has actually come and and brought decisive victory and yet is not permanently ruling. He's ruling over all things in heaven yet his rule on earth is not here and so we're waiting still, looking for the king to return. 
to secure righteousness and, and security from enemies and prosperity and peace. The good news for us, like David had been raised up, he was a descendant of Jesse. In Matthew and his genealogy, we see another genealogy of someone who came from the root of Jesse and, and Jesus Christ has been sent He says in Revelation, actually, I think we have this this scripture for you, Revelation. He says, I I think one one prior to that, maybe. Oh, maybe not. There we go. Luke 1, 32. He will be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This is the kind of king we look to. He says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus has been and is the kind of king who's completely faithful in our place, completely obedient for us. And yet he took all of God's just punishment for us and in our place. He's the self-sacrificing king. He enables us to live for God forever. He's the king of all kings. When you look around at the world's problems and troubles, it's obvious we need a better leader than an earthly leader. In the last few weeks, we've been, had a heightened awareness that we need a better leader. But it's not an earthly leader we need to be looking to. That's what Samuel teaches us. We need a leader who's not self-seeking. Yes and amen, but we may not get that here on earth. But we have a king who has sought our good to his own detriment. We need a king who doesn't have an agenda to use and manipulate us for his own purpose. We, we need a king who has his purposes that will be accomplished for our good. We need a strong leader who won't back down from any foe. You know, maybe there's been some capitulation in the world leaders of late in different ways. Maybe you've been disappointed. Let's not look for an earthly kind of king. Let's look for a king who does not disappoint who does not back down from any foe, has conquered every foe, and will suppress every name that arrays itself against him. We have a leader that we need, a leader who's faithful. We need a leader who's loving and eminently merciful. That's the leader that we have. And not only is Jesus our king, He makes us all children of the king. I pray that through Samuel, we all will see him more clearly and long for his return even more. And I pray that this morning, that we would see that what we need is not our own way. What we need is not the answer to all our earthly problems. What we need is the king who is already ruling who is the king forever. Amen. Let's pray. Go ahead and the worship team come up for just a moment.